creating cultural awareness and understanding. This is Culture Click. Culture Click is written and produced by KQAL-FM on the campus of Winona State University. Have you ever been to a midnight movie? What exactly constitutes a midnight movie? How did the trend get started? And is it now something of the past? Today on Culture Click, we find out the answers to these questions. Local filmmaker photographer Nathaniel Nelson takes us on a journey through the world of schlock and midnight movies during a recent Nerd Night talk at Ed's No Name Barn. Nathaniel takes us back to the origins of the midnight movie, discusses the finer points of the genre, and also contemplates its future. I'm Bill Stoneberg with Nathaniel Nelson on Culture Click. Okay, so as Carl said, I'm a filmmaker, photographer, sound tech, uh, frequent eds, um, and tonight I'm going to be talking about Midnight Movie. Um, and before I get into all the mumbo jumbo about like the actual history and go through these 70 years, um, first a couple questions. So who has seen a Midnight Movie? Okay, now what I hmm? At midnight? Yes. <laughs> um, so when I say Midnight Movie, what do you think? Like, what's the first thing that pops in your head? Rocky Horror? Okay. Anything else? All right, sweet. Um, so, the actual, what a midnight movie is, it gets a little confusing. Um, so, today, the term midnight movie is often used to both talk about cult films and B-movies, which aren't exactly the same thing. So B-movies were typically low-budget films that they put on the second term of a double feature. You'd have a wider release film, and then you'd have the cheaper one with lower-name actors, lower-name directors. Um, and cult movies are their own separate thing, which does tie into Midnight Movie, but is a separate thing. But we're going to go into where Midnight Movie started, and that's in the home. So in the early 1950s, the Screen Actors Guild signed a new residual plan. And so what this basically allowed was that films could be reused on TV, um, and replayed, and actors, writers, um, directors would receive funds from the screenings. Um, and this also made it easier for TV stations to air the films. And so in the years that came afterwards, different channels decided to start doing these sort of pre-programming late at night with films. Um, so one of the first ones, and probably the most important one, is The Vampira Show. And most of you are probably familiar with her spiritual successor, Elvira. Um, but The Vampira Show ran for 50 episodes over two years um, and aired every Saturday night at midnight and played basically schlocky um, horror films and crime films, heavy genre bases. Um, and a lot of other channels ended up picking up on that same vein. They picked these cheap films that they could play late at night. Um, and after midnight was also when FCC's guidelines kind of got lifted a little bit. Um, so they could play things that would be a little more risque and unexpected. Um, and so this kind of continued over the next decade or so. The first film that actually had a sort of midnight release, in a sense, was Hammer Films' Curse of Frankenstein. And I might be wrong on that, but that was the first one I could find. Um, and that had a few midnight screenings across the United States, just kind of adding to the whole horror flair. Um, and then the whole idea of this sort of midnight screenings, these B-movies, made their way over to the UK um, in the 60s with BBC Two's Midnight Movie, which was every week they played a B-movie, a horror film, a crime film. Um, they also played some dramas and other cheap films, but they're typically based within genres. 
Um, and so here's some examples of the kinds of films that were played at these times. Things like White Zombie, which is one of the first zombie films. Uh, King of the Zombies, a lot of horror stuff. Um, crime stuff like Larceny in Her Heart, Fatal Hour, Missing Corpse. Um, and a lot of these kind of had the same basis as pulp novels of the era, too. You have, like, the noir works of, like, DeShiel Hammett or um, some of the pulp horror novels, like uh, Weird Tales. Um, so that leads to the second, and this is more the proper, what is determined as a midnight movie. Um, and this leads outside of the 50s, into the 60s, and into the 70s. So I actually have a trailer of a film that kind of kicked off the whole thing. So we'll play that real quick. All right. So that was the trailer for El Topo. Um, and so that film was, when it came out, like, not a whole lot of people really cared. Um, it was seen as weird, gratuitous, um, overly sexual, overly violent. Um, I know one critic said that it had more violence than 20 seasons of The Wild Bunch. Um, and it, like, it didn't really kick off, except when it began playing late at night at the Elgin Theater in New York City. Um, the first few screenings were decently attended, but over time, um, crowds began to grow. And every week they would come out, see this movie late at night, um, and just become drawn in with its spiritual themes, its hyper-violence, um, its weird, trippy, surreal aesthetic. Um, and eventually, John Lennon, who saw the film three times, had his manager buy the film from their own production company. Um, and he started bringing it around to other theaters, also playing it at midnight. And this was kind of what kicked off the idea of what is a midnight movie. Um, and this is kind of like the crux point for what I consider to be the midnight movie. It's not a genre or something you can call just movies in general. It's more of an event. Um, and so this spread across New York City and eventually to other urban areas like Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago. Um, and other films came out around that time that also kind of epitomized the same sort of styles, like John Waters' Pink Flamingos, um, which is, its tagline was an exercise in poor taste. Um, and so it's a film with incestual overtones, just the raunchiest, most gratuitous, oh man, it, it's, it's nasty. Um, it's a great film. Um, but that, along with a lot of other films that came around that same time, you had things like Flesh Gordon, um, the works of Roger Corman, like Piranha, um, The Trip, Death Race 2000. Um, a lot of movies that came out around these times ended up kind of, and just, they kind of appeared on the circuit. Um, and this became a circuit after a few years where films would end up kind of just traveling along the different theaters um, and groups would come out um, in droves to see these movies at these midnight hours. Um, and eventually, we get to Rocky Horror Picture Show, um, 1976. So that movie came out. It was a bomb. It made no money at the box office. Nobody cared. Um, and then it made its way to Greenwich Village. Um, and so the first few times, like El Topo, um, screenings were decently attended, but suddenly people started dressing up and then performing, and then it just became its own beast. Um, and this is probably the most evergreen midnight movie today. I mean, a lot of theater, I think it's, what, 38 theaters across the country screen it weekly, um, and another 12 do it monthly, or maybe two dozen do it monthly. Um, but it's still a very, very big part of um, late-night cinema culture. 
Um, and then we get to other films like David Lynch's Eraserhead and... Um, uh, do I have... There. A bunch of other ones. You have things like Repo Man, Holy Mountain, Night of the Living Dead, The Warriors. Yeah, so... <laughs> actually, fun part about The Warriors. So, um, The Warriors was part of a late set of films in the early, mid-80s. So you actually had um, major production companies and uh, studios making films specifically for this circuit. Um, they, you, they just expect it to not do well in a wide release. Um, and when they put it on you know, the midnight films, people came out. Um, so that gets to like, what actually makes a midnight movie? And it's not just being a cult film or being a B-movie or being schlocky or weird. Um, it actually has a few specific things. You have like hypersexualization, typically surreal or otherwise absurd overtones. Um, this twisted, dark sense of humor is in a lot of them. Um, avant-garde tendencies, extreme violence. Um, another thing is a lot of these films ended up kind of capturing different countercultures of the times. So you have like the punks, you have, like the warriors, and Repo Man, um, LGBTQ, um, and like late era hippies. So you're still kind of living in the 60s, but not really. Um, and a lot of urban communities, they got just kind of attached themselves to these weirder films. And the big aspect of it is the socialization. Um, actually, there's two things. So one, it's, it became a social event for people. Um, it wasn't just about seeing the film or just going to the movies. It was about going with people you knew and going to a sort of show. Like Rocky Horror Picture Show is the biggest example because they literally perform um, but a lot of these other ones, it became sort of just kind of a ritual to go to these films. Um, and the other thing is it's this just kind of sick thing that people like. <laughs> like, it's the idea of, these were films that were containing subject matter and visuals that you wouldn't see anywhere else. You wouldn't see it on the big Cineplex screens. Um, so f going with a bunch of people late at night to a theater for a single screening of something that was just like off the wall, that became something people liked. And that kind of has its own roots back in this, the 1950s midnight movies. While those were more schlocky B horror films, it's that same kind of tendency. It was something that you could watch that you wouldn't be able to see otherwise. So, and now we get to the third part, the downfall. So now we're getting into the 90s. And this was, you know, the time of the technological boom. People started having cell phones. I mean, they were huge, but they existed. Um, VHSs became available. Um, people were able to bring their things home with them. Um, and that kind of, it, it, you can't really attach a causation thing to the end of the Midnight movie. It just kind of filtered out after a while. Um, but having the ability to go, what? a mile away to your local blockbuster and pick up a film, made it easier to find those weirder pieces and be able to bring your friends home, have dinner, have a beer, and enjoy something. And so that ended up kind of ending the midnight movie in a way, for a while. Um, so in the 90s, big studios began doing these midnight premieres. Now it's like 7 o'clock, 6 o'clock on a Thursday. Um, but you had things like Batman and Robin, which had a midnight premiere. It was one of the early ones. Um, I think it was Dick Tracy, they actually gave out um, t-shirts that was like, I was there first, which counted as a pass to the film. Um, and so those kind of like midnight premieres became the norm in just in cinemas. 
Um, and that's, it's kind of has that same sort of socialization aspect that um, Midnight Movies had, but it's not the cult weird things. It just became a popular culture. Um, and then you get the DVDs, and that's when everything goes off the rails, um, because those were cheap to produce, easy to produce, and widely available. And I mean, how many of you guys own a DVD at home? I'm assuming every single person in this room has one to several to hundreds. Um, but that just kind of put the last nail in the coffin until the room came out. So the room was made as a serious drama, or at least most people who worked on the film thought it was. Um, and of course, absolutely bombed. Um, but like other um, midnight films, you had a small group of people who started going and started being intrigued. And eventually, colleges and students began to call and try to get this film screened. And people had that same kind of reaction they did to Rocky Horror Picture Show. But instead of you know, acting out um, and kind of participating in the film, they laughed at the film, they jeered, they threw spoons, because there's this weird picture just kind of sitting on his table of a spoon and nobody knows what it's for. Um, and that kind of had this resurgence in the midnight movie and midnight movie culture. Um, whether we it's like, you know, Netflix appearing um, and then that changing things. But midnight movies today, they still exist, albeit differently than they did before. They're not, it's the kind of cultural touchstone they were um, in the 70s, in the 80s. Um, they're more of a kind of cult fandom thing. Um, but instead of, you know, just weird um, off-kilter films showing up, you have kind of popular films that people either can't see here, like foreign films, you have things like The Room, um, Troll 2, uh, Rocky Horror is still a huge presence, um, but it became more about these like smaller countercultures, like cinephiles who went to go see these films and participate in them, um, and it gave them a chance to see things they wouldn't otherwise be able to in a interesting location. Um, so now, like, the actual existence of Midnight Movies kind of up in the air. Um, it's, it's still there, but it's not what it was. Um, but I, I just feel like that's kind of how people have gone in general um, with how they consume media, with how they interact with media. The, the idea of going to the cinema as a event, as a celebration, that's just kind of gone. Instead, it's you have going to whatever, the new Marvel movie. Um, and you're even seeing box drop offices drop year on year. You have bigger films like the last Avengers movie, which made, what, $350 million its first weekend in the U.S. alone, which is absurd. Um, but the actual overall amount is going down. People are coming back home, turning on Netflix, and watching what they are. So the actual art of going to the theater and that as an event is sort of gone. So it's going to be interesting to see how this kind of continues, if these small theaters will keep doing these sort of midnight screenings and showing films from the 70s, from the 80s, from now. Um, but, yeah. So that's now. I'm here with Nathaniel Nelson, and uh, he's a filmmaker, photographer, and president of Treatome here in uh, Winona. And we're down at Ed Snow Name Bar. He just got a, a, a nerd night talk on... Schlock and Midnight Movies. So uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. For sure. And, you know, I'm curious, why did you settle on the topic? Like, um, how did you get into it? How did you get into Midnight Movies? Um, you know, what's your interest like? Where's your interest like? 
Well, I mean, I guess it starts mostly with my interest in surrealist films. Um, a lot of my work as a film student at Winona State kind of had that bend to it. Um, I did a lot of studies on Alejandro Jodorowsky, his films, The Holy Mountain, El Topo, Santa Sangra, um, as well as David Lynch, um, some more modern surrealists. Um, and that was just kind of what I ended up writing about a lot of the time and my where my interest lies. But talking about surrealism to a bunch of people at a bar, um, I thought was going to be a little bit too much because um, I can only talk about Dada as principles so much before people start spacing out. Um, but because it has such a big connection to cult movies and midnight films, um, which is something that everybody can relate to and everybody knows, um, I thought that would be an easier topic to get people involved in and get people interested in. Okay, cool. I, you know, and I, I thought it was interesting how you uh, traced the history of the Midnight Movie and how it evolved and then has kind of, kind of faded away a little bit. Um, do you think that, you know, in this day and age, like you were talking about Netflix kind of killing it, you know, DVDs kind of killing it, do you think that the movies as an event to go to um, could possibly kind of resurrect Midnight Movies in the future? You know, it'd be something... I don't know. Do you, do you know what I'm getting at there? Yeah. Um, well, I think that, like, despite my own saying that Midnight Films are dead, they're also not dead. Um, like Schrodinger's film. Um, so a as cinema evolves and as it continues, um, in general, the populace is going more toward these sort of blockbusters, event-type films. Um, Disney, for example. Um, who now owns, I think it's 40% of the production uh, stuff in the United States. Um, and, I mean, that's insane. Um, but a lot of the films that are making a ton of money and getting a lot of people going to them are these sort of event films. Um, now, the cult films, there's very specific circuits that love them. Um, you have film festivals devoted to genre films. You have, like... Um, small micro cinemas like the Triline up in Minneapolis or Grey Duck in Rochester um, and you have smaller segments um, that are very interested in this specific style um, but it's not as pervasive as it once was okay. sure. but the idea of a midnight film I don't think will ever completely fade away because there is something so raw about going to a film at midnight and some of that will and has ended up at home and it will continue to end up at home with Netflix and with home media and being able to do it at home and not have to travel somewhere at midnight to go see a film but the experience of being with people at a film experiencing it, talking about it I don't think that's going to fade away I hope not. You know, I mean, when I was younger, I used to go see The Wall all the time at midnight movies, you know, with my friends. And it was an event. You know, every time I played, it was an event to go see it. So, yeah, I hope that stays alive. Um, do you personally have a favorite that would be categorized as midnight movie? Or is, is that a kind of a tough yeah, question? Or um, So, I mean, I've talked about El Topo and Yodorasi's films, and I love those to death. But my favorite is Harold and Maude. Really? Yeah. Um, and I, it just has this really interesting aesthetic to me. Um, this goofy humor, like nihilistic. Um, and I just think it's just good, good film. And the soundtrack's impeccable. Right. It's so good. Um, but I'd say that's probably my favorite. Um, I mean, my favorite films change on a weekly basis. Right. But that's one that I come back to a lot. 
Okay, cool, cool. Do you, uh, now, this is just something I thought of as, you know, as, as a filmmaker yourself, do you, uh, are you interested in making kind of schlock kind of stuff, or is that something you're not really interested in doing? Well, I think schlock as a specific genre is kind of dead. Okay. Um, now, you have a lot of films and filmmakers who use elements of schlock within their um, own works, like uh, take Slice, for instance, that was released by A24. Um, I think it was A24. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Um, but it starred Chance the Rapper, um, and it's about like a haunted pizza joint where like a community lives with ghosts, um, and they just kind of like exist with each other. Right. Um, and it's campy as all heck, and it's just the weirdest thing. But and it has those elements of schlock, but it isn't like pure schlock. It's not, you know, the Toxic Avenger. Right. Um, but personally, I most of what I do is music videos, um, working with local artists um, and like some documentary work. Um, and I'm still trying to figure out what I want my first film to be. Okay. Um, so I don't really know my personal style, but all of my stuff has a little bit of humor to it, um, which I think is important no matter what you're making. Um, so whatever I make it will be a little bit funny. Okay, cool. And there's always that thing that, you know, the stuff you take in, it, it comes out a little bit. So maybe we'll see something from you in the future. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, well, I've been here with Nathaniel Nelson, and uh, we're talking about uh, Midnight Movies down at Ed's No Name Bar for uh, Nerd Night. Uh, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks again to Nathaniel Nelson for joining us today on Culture Click. For information on other Nerd Night events, search Nerd Night Winona on Facebook. To keep up on all things Winona and the surrounding area, tune into Culture Click Thursdays at 1230 right here on 89.5 KQAL. I'm Bill Stoneberg, and we've just heard from Nathaniel Nelson on Culture Click. Creating cultural awareness and understanding. You've been listening to Culture Click. Support for Culture Click is made possible by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Culture Click is produced by KQAL-FM on the campus of Winona State University. For more information, look us up on the web at kqal.org. And thanks for listening to Culture Click. Are you interested in all things Winona and the surrounding area? Find podcasts of Culture Click and all your favorite KQAL shows by going to kqal.org and looking for program archives under the Media tab. Culture Click is made possible by a grant from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.